Welcome to the Living Jewishly Podcast. I'm Dr. Elliot Nottleman. And I'm Rabbi Yossi Saperman. We talk about Judaism, and we talk about living, and we talk about everything in between. Judaism is not nearly as boring as I thought it was now that I talk to Elliot regularly. We're not selling you on Judaism. We're not selling you on living. We're just trying to get you inside of our brains, the way we think about stuff. By getting you into our Jewish brain, you'll argue a lot, you'll disagree, you'll love, you'll eat, you'll have a really good time, you'll learn a lot of things, and you know what? You might actually find that all those 3,000 years have been worth it. Elliot, I want to talk about a challenging holiday, and it's not challenging in the sense that it offends me. It's just ephemeral. It's hard to talk about Sukkot. Sukkot literally means the booth. The booth that we create, sort of like the hunting shack or the harvest shack, that reminds us of the clouds of glory that covered us when we went out of Egypt. That's sort of the origin. And there's four species that we use. And we sit in this sukkah, we have our meals in this little shack, essentially, and we're supposed to remember the exodus from Egypt. So I don't understand it that way at all. For me, the sukkah represents the vulnerability of our lives. Anyone who's gone through Rosh Hashanah and thought about the purpose of the year to come, anyone who's gone through their frailties and challenges in Yom Kippur should realize that life is fragile and frail. It's entirely appropriate to put yourself into a space in which you're vulnerable. It's no different than putting a tent in your backyard and going to sleep outside in the fall where you're vulnerable. You're more vulnerable than you are in your brick house, like in the Three Little Pigs story. So we actually go to the house made of straw, essentially, and we realize that we're, we're susceptible. But interestingly enough, we have two major counteractions to the vulnerability. The first one is the idea of harvesting your life. It's the festival of harvest. The original intention of Sukkot was not a religious holiday. It was a festival of harvest in which you had a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And you got to come and celebrate with your family the harvest, which is... You can call it pagan, but essentially, it's human. It's a great thing to do to have a celebration with your family. What we've done in, in, uh, since the Talmudic era was we created something called Ushpizen, which are guests, which not only do we get to celebrate the harvest of our lives, and we get to talk about our vulnerabilities and appreciate the people that are with us, we actually get to invite our history into our lives. This is a holiday in which... We also remember how to bring people that we miss into our lives. It doesn't have to be family. It can be for some some people, it can be the victims of the Holocaust. For others, it can be the great orators of the past who inspired people. Whoever you want to bring in for a shpizen. I know it's prescriptive. There's the ancestors, there's the, the patriarchs, the matriarchs, Moses, Aaron. But for me and for others, it has become an opportunity to bring and rememorialize the important people. It's almost create the hologram of your life in your sukkah. Because when you're feeling vulnerable, the object of the lesson is, what did my ancestors do? Because we survived, we're, we made it. So how do we continue both to harvest the joy and harvest the history of our lives? The last part of Sukkot, which I always find striking, is the four species. Because it is really unusual for a festival to involve four species, the myrtle, which is a fairly common plant, grows in marshy areas. The willow grows on a stream of water. The etrog is a citron or some form of uh, lemon-like um, fragrant 
fruit, and then there's the the uh, lulav, which is sort of a spine-shaped palm branch, which, as we know, that there's a commonality between Palm Sunday and Sukkot. It has to do with the relationship Jesus had to the temple and so on. What's fascinating to me is that Jewish tradition typically uses objects as food or as sacred. In this case, we're using it again in that pagan fashion to pray for rain and fertility. And the way we understand it is the myrtle looks like an eye and the willow looks like the lips. The etrog, the citron, represents the heart and the lulav represents the spine. Some say it means that we're all human and we're, therefore we're all united and it's a hope that the world will come to peace because we will all see the humanity in each other. It's a wonderful way to look at things. I also understand it almost like in the native spirituality. May our lips speak only good about each other. May our eyes see the good. May our heart feel warmly towards others. And may our spine stand up straight in defense of justice and peace and goodness in the world. It is the natural conclusion of Yom Kippur to go out and harvest and bring the natural world in and say, I am in connection with nature and I am in connection with my own vulnerabilities because of nature, but yet I will stand up tall and strong for the world. That is my understanding of Sukkot. It's certainly slightly abstracted, but ultimately that is what it comes down to, is creating a framework for vulnerability, reclaiming of memory, harvesting your life, and then connecting with nature at a time of transition, which is the fall, and it's a beautiful time for me. So Yessi, I want to think about what you're talking about in terms of vulnerability, because it seems to me that one of the deeper things that goes on in this holiday is the relationship of vulnerability to space, meaning being outside. I think human beings have an interesting relation with being outside. It's very liberating, like the, the notion of getting out of the house, even when we talk about it, suggests a certain kind of freedom, a certain kind of sociability, like you're not isolated, especially in cold weather countries. And a sense that there's something out there for me, right? And that's magnified when you go into nature, right? Which people associate with getting back to themselves with a sense of tranquility and so on. But there's also a deep vulnerability. And, it, you know, when you were talking, it reminded me of a really, really tragic story that happened to a friend of mine um, who lives in Vancouver, who I've known since we were in school together. Um, and we kind of lost touch, but... Um, I found out some years ago that she'd gotten married, she had a daughter, and one weekend, husband and daughter went out camping um, in the mountains out in BC, and there was a, a kind of an avalanche, and they died. Mm -hmm. So my friend is left without a world, right? Her husband and daughter die that day. She wakes up. It's a new world, right? And there's this enormous, you know, thinking about them, because it's hard not to, you think about them on their last night out there in the cold, camped out. And they were experienced. Her husband was a really experienced camper. It was just a fluke thing, the RCMP said. They're out there. They're vulnerable to the elements. But obviously, you go out there because there's something about being out there that creates a new kind of consciousness for a human being. Like, why do you go camping in the mountains? Because it's it's going to evoke something in you emotionally that you're not going to get in your basement or your living room. I think that this holiday is saying something to us about the ability to go outside of ourselves, to go to, to a space 
and have a new thought. Like I actually think that the way you talk about things in the sukha should be different. That being in a different geographical proximity should actually create a new kind of way of thinking, a new kind of way of singing, of even of, of relating to each other. There's something about shifting the space that should create that. New way of sleeping outside, you know, new way of eating, right? It's trying to almost reboot the way you relate to the things in your life by recontextualizing them in a different space, in a vulnerable space. So I think that if we realize this about the holiday, it can be very powerful because after all, if you think about kind of the modern, the contemporary conversation online, on social media, there's an enormous amount about vulnerability, right? TED Talks, you know, Brené Brown, who's extremely popular now, who talks about vulnerability and shame. And there's something about being exposed, which is another word that sort of comes with this, the sort of exposure that happens that I think is thought-provoking. And when you think about this holiday, it, it kind of gets a little bit lost in the wake of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. I mean, it's very enjoyable and it, it's, it's very relaxing in that sense. But it gets lost, and I think that the way of thinking about it is that Yom Kippur is extremely internal. You're literally inside all day. That's what people will say. They'll say, like, I was inside all day. And it's also inside in terms of your heart, in terms of the whole inward kind of looking. And this is a move out. It's what Virginia Woolf called the voyage out. That sometimes to go in, you've got to go out. You've got to rethink your life by being in a different space. And so this is a kind of, this is Judaism to me at its very best, which is to create a kind of symbolic reenactment of going out and thinking differently in order to regain consciousness. Elliot, we're done. I'm sorry for screaming at you for the last half hour, but it was, I learned something. That's okay. I don't mind you screaming. Did you learn anything? I learned that you scream at me a little bit. <laughs> I want to thank everyone who listened. Please send us your feedback at hello at livingjewishly.org. We would absolutely love to hear from you. 